0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker Magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, Fiction Editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear The Evolution of Knowledge by Niccolo Tucci.
1: My wife observed that our lot had not improved much with exile. In Italy, the tyrant had been constantly awake over us. Here, he was asleep under our feet.
0: The story was chosen by Thomas Beller, several of whose stories and talk of the town pieces have appeared in The New Yorker. He's the author of the story collection Seduction Theory, the novel The Sleepover Artist, and a book of essays titled How to Be a Man, Scenes from a Protracted Boyhood. He was also the editor of Open City and is the creator of the website Mr. Beller's Neighborhood. Hi, Tom.
1: Deborah, nice to see you.
0: So The Evolution of Knowledge was Niccolo Ducci's first piece in The New Yorker, published here in 1947, and he went on contributing to the magazine until the 70s. He died in 1999. Did you ever get to meet him in person? No. So how did you come across his work?
1: In the best sense, uh, someone gave me a book, which is The Rain Came Last and Other Stories, which this story appears in. And I responded to the book. I loved the story collection. I, uh, by accident, had a second take, a kind of behind backstage glimpse of... Tucci when I was in the uh, Manuscript's Rare Books room in the New York Public Library uh, sitting with a file on J.D. Salinger and I had done this in some desperation because I was trying to write an essay about Salinger and I thought it might be somehow provocative to see some ephemera of his and there was a box and there were the S's and next to the S's were the T's and there was Niccolo Tucci's Mm -hmm. file so I went through the fairly slim pickings of Salinger and then pulled out Niccolò Tucci. And now suddenly I was looking at the ephemera correspondence, drafts, manuscripts of this writer whose collection I would really loved. On one hand, it introduced me to the other dimensions of his work, but then it also had this crazy sort of personality exploding. This correspondence, for example, mm-hmm. was very entertaining to me. And I Xeroxed a bunch of things as they allow you to do and sort of had this sheath of kind of Samizat (laughs) Tucci that I enjoyed for a number of years.
0: Well, if you um, look on the New Yorker website at uh, the page for this story, it lists the keywords Jews, children, Italians. (laughs) Now, is there anything else that that listeners should know before they hear the story? Or is that a good enough description? (laughs) No, I
1: think you got to add some tags to that one. I would say uh, apartments, Mm -hmm. neighbors,
0: Nineteen forty-seven.
1: I don't know about that. I don't even know if that's necessary. I think just uh, the Upper West Side or Morningside Heights pre-war apartment. I mean, there's a very intense uh, architectural component to the story. If someone has never seen or has no point of reference to the actual structure he's writing about, I think the story would work. But he is alluding to a very particular flavor of building Mm -hmm. that is um, fairly abundant in in Manhattan, and it's fairly abundant in cities, certainly across America. So yes, no, in addition to Jews, Italians, and children, you know, apartments, neighbors, perhaps, um, emigres.
0: Post-war fascism,
1: too. Mm-hmm. And We'll uh, get to that. Family life.
0: Well, we'll talk more after the story. And now here's Thomas Beller reading Niccolo Tucci's story, The Evolution of Knowledge.
1: There is something wrong with the floors of our apartment in New York, Not even our superintendent can do anything about it, for the cause of the trouble lies beyond his reach. It may in fact be traced back to the incongruities of progress and to the decay of Western civilization. Also to my two children, especially my son Vieri, who is seven. Every bounce of Vieri's ball on the floor evokes the spirit of Mr. Feinstein and sets into motion a long line of actions and reactions which end in Mr. Feinstein's "'pounding on the radiator pipe "'or on his ceiling right under our feet. "'The spirit of Mr. Feinstein grows bigger, "'bigger, bigger, "'until everything is Mr. Feinstein. "'Vieri, in fact, is the real sorcerer's apprentice "'with that ball. "'Tum-ti-tum-ta-ta-ta-tum-ti-tum-ti. "'But there was a time when Mr. Feinstein "'didn't allow his spirit to reach us through his ceiling. "'He kept his fuming downstairs.' That is why I think the story should be told. It is a highly philosophical story because it proves that knowledge is not static, but instead is constantly in the process of evolution. Three years ago, when Mr. Feinstein pounded on the radiator, we did not care. Then one day, I met him in the elevator. Though we had never happened to meet before, each of us knew instinctively who the other was, so, man to man, we had one of those bitter exchanges of words, just off the limits of politeness that are usually accompanied by acceleration of the heartbeat and heavy breathing. Alas, in our case, the exchange was also marked by an uncontrollable relapse into our foreign accents. Though this last hampered the free flow of profanity, it was how I learned that Mr. Feinstein came from Saxony and how he, who has lived in my country, understood that I came from Tuscany. But what we chiefly managed to convey to each other was that man must sleep, his theory, and children must jump, mine. The next time we met, we realized that we were both haters of hate more than of each other, so we tried to solve the problem by means of diplomatic negotiation. We exiles, I said, are always in a state of repressed emotion. He nodded and then explained, with many apologies, that the floor squeaked terribly even when I walked on it, barefoot, and I explained, with my own apologies, that I had intended for some time to buy carpets for all the rooms. But you know, and he said, don't I know, you must not misunderstand me. Please, it's not your fault. The floors haven't been repaired for the last two years because of the war. So, you see, it's definitely one of those things that cannot be helped. I thanked him for the acquittal, and he had an even more encouraging observation for me. Children's noise was also one of those things that could not be helped, he said. I said, you're much too kind, and to tell you the truth, my children should learn how to behave. Oh no, he said, and I knew that he was growing political in his thoughts, because his face became quite somber. We have all suffered too much because of this idea of restraint, he said. I, who was brought up in the strictest discipline, am now all in favor of the American system. Children here— May do just as they please, they grow healthier, freer. I nodded gratefully, and, feeling that I must now repay him for his understanding, began to search my mind for something very bad to say against my children, something that would even make them appear to be unworthy of this blessed American freedom. But before I could formulate a reply, he made a demand. All I ask you to do, he said, is to have the children wear slippers on Saturdays and Sundays until at least ten in the morning, for that's the only time in the week that I can rest a little. This is indeed very little to ask, I said, and I assure you that it will be done. When I entered my apartment and found my family gathered in plenary session in the kitchen, I announced that I had just had a pleasant talk with the man downstairs. To my wife I said, by way of comment, a very civilized kind person, really, and to the children by way of injunction, all he wants from you is that on Saturdays and Sundays, until after ten in the morning, you walk with your slippers and don't play ball. Can you imagine anything easier than that? They immediately saw the adventure in a program of this kind. The idea of connecting their slippers with a given period of time seemed full of mystery and charm. Vieri told me that he would watch the clock, and the very instant the hand touched the first tiny portion of the figure ten, he would throw his slippers against the ceiling. And Bimba, who was only five, immediately went to her room and came back to the kitchen where we were sitting with her slippers and vieris to rehearse the Feast of Liberation. No, no, I shouted, and my wife shouted, no, no. But since the slippers were already flying in all directions and landing in the sink on the gas rings behind the icebox and on the breakfast table, I saw that the situation was desperate and I commanded silence. Then I made an announcement. First of all, I said, when he says ten o'clock, he doesn't mean that at ten sharp we have to start making a lot of noise. Ten o'clock means some time in the middle of the morning. We don't want to impose on his kindness. Impose? Vieri asked. What does that mean? Now look, I said, the idea is this. We don't want to be unkind to this man. And I went on to explain that on Saturday and Sunday mornings we would go to the park if the weather was fine or play quiet games at home. If it rained in back of our apartment building above the parkway and the hudson there is a wild cliff covered with rocks and trees this is where all the children of the apartment house play and in summer or on mild winter days many of the grown-ups sit there in deck chairs and hate the children while enjoying the view of the boats on the river my wife sometimes goes to the cliff with the children in the afternoon and it was there a few days after our family session, that she first met Mrs. Feinstein. From her she learned that Mr. Feinstein had been a writer in Germany and that he was now again trying to write in a new language. He had a quiet office downtown where he worked five days a week, but the shattering experiences of the past in Germany and the difficulty of mastering English had so discouraged him that after a day of writing he could hardly sleep at night, which was why he had to have his rest on Saturdays and Sundays. Mrs. Feinstein also expressed the hope that we would see more of each other and become friends. You see, said my wife to me later, after recounting all this, it's really a matter of honor for us to make up for our past sins and show that we are able to bring up our children to be civilized human beings. Yes, indeed, I said, especially as the Feinsteins have asked little enough of us. We won't even try to become real friends with them until after we've given them reason to respect us. Thus began our ordeal. The first Saturday morning, both children put on their slippers and climbed on the table in their bedroom to reach for the picture books on the top shelf. I was in my room, looking at the paper, when I heard the most frightful noise. I rushed into the children's room and saw that all the big books and a box filled with wooden blocks, plus three or four wooden cows, had fallen on the floor. The children were blaming each other for the disaster, and they at once began a battle of shoes, books, and marbles. Needless to say, the reaction from downstairs was none too kind, and we learned later that even though we had gone out for the entire afternoon, Mr. Feinstein had found it impossible to repair the damage done to his sleep that day. I was lucky enough not to see Mr. Feinstein for a whole week after the incident, but one day my wife met his wife when they were both waiting their turns at the washing machine in the basement. My wife renewed our pledge to keep to the 10 o'clock limit on weekends. This happened on a Friday. So very early the next morning, before the children could wake up, I went into their room and put their slippers in a place where they would be sure to see them. Next to the slippers, I put colored pencils, toys, and other accepted items of pre-breakfast entertainment. Everything went splendidly that one day, so splendidly, in fact, that we often recalled the occasion later and said among ourselves, Why can't we have another December 17th? But the fact is that we just didn't. In our family, at least, History does not repeat itself. A couple of months later, rumors began to reach us from reliable sources, as they say in the papers, to the effect that Mr. Feinstein always spoke of us as the parents of the two noisy children. Not a friendly word about us. This struck my wife and me painfully, and what disturbed us even more was to learn from one of our neighbors that Mr. Feinstein had received bad news from his family in Europe and was quite depressed. My wife and I then held a secret meeting to plan a new strategy. It was a Monday morning and we had just got the children off to school. I'm more worried about ourselves than about Mr. Feinstein, said my wife. What will become of us in the future when, instead of trying to teach the children not to make noise, we will want to teach them not to wage aggressive wars on their neighbors? The future is not yet, I said, so don't worry. The next morning I stopped in at my children's school and consulted the school psychologist, whom I had come to know and like. He said, Very simple, my friend. If you want to impress upon your children the notion that Mr. Feinstein is asleep, you must first believe it yourself. It's like the psychology of selling. You can never sell a thing in which you yourself have no faith. And furthermore, he said, your methods are dictatorial. You can't ask children for exceptional behavior on Saturdays without any previous training. Try to approach Saturday by degrees. Accumulate a capital of habit— act artificially by minor doses until Saturday comes to them naturally, without a shock. I thanked him very much for his advice and began that same day to think in terms of Saturday. Mr. Feinstein was away in his office downtown, but I was beginning to prepare a nice silence for him upstairs. It was a wonderful feeling. I almost saw myself as a young bride preparing the first meal for her husband hours before he comes back from the office. I walked cautiously even typed cautiously, for I work at home. And when the children returned from school, I said to them, "'Let's all work together for a better Saturday.' Hurrah! they shouted. "'Let's work right away. May we use our shovels?' "'Children!' I whispered in my new, velveted, tired voice. "'Please, my dear, good, gentle children. "'Come, let's sit peacefully together and have silent fun.' And while saying this, I caressed their heads and closed my eyes to suggest peace. I have come to the point at which my critics, among them my wife, accuse me of having brought violence into my advocacy of peace. They may be right. Perhaps I am too passionate a character anyway. Well, it was Thursday afternoon, and the children were playing in their room while I was writing in the living room. Needless to say, Mr. Feinstein was not at home. Suddenly I heard the sound of hammering. I emerged from the nineteenth century in Rome in which my work had submerged me to ask my wife with anguish, What time is it? Saturday morning was in my subconscious, so much so that I began to plead with my son to stop hammering. My wife took his side against me. She said he had every right to play with his tool kit. I tried everything, even literature. I said, If Thursday is here, can Saturday be far behind? Think of that poor man downstairs who will be asleep in less than two days from now. Neither Vieri nor my wife was impressed. That night I committed my greatest mistake. I went downstairs and asked Mr. Feinstein to help me, and although he said again that those two mornings on the weekend were all he cared for, I insisted so earnestly that he made two more demands. A 1 to 3 p.m. silence on Sundays and a nightly silence after 9. It was a little too much, I felt, but after all I'd asked for it. In fairness to Mr. Feinstein, I must say that he did what he could to help me, pounding his disapproval on the radiator pipe each time we played the Victrola, or I typed after nine. Since his approval was not shown by any applause but was simply left to our guess, our hopeful guessing, plus the occasional ghost-like rappings on the radiator, seemed to summon up Mr. Feinstein's spirit. The whole family began to flee from it. We withdrew to the kitchen and lived there like fugitives— we talked to our guests in whispers and always told them not to walk too confidently, lest the spirit wake up. One evening while we were having guests, Mr. Feinstein was, of course, present in spirit. My wife observed that our lot had not improved much with exile. In Italy, the tyrant had been constantly awake over us. Here he was asleep under our feet. The joke was such a success that one of our guests, laughing convulsively, drummed on the floor with his heels, and at once, Bang, bang, the spirit replied. Before long, the phrase, Mr. Feinstein is asleep, was no longer a phrase, it was a dogma. It was, in fact, the law. I vaguely recall that this was the period when I could no longer work on my historical research, and while my actions were all devoted to the defense of Mr. Feinstein's sleep, my thoughts centered on hating him. Finally, a friend gave me a key to his apartment so that I could go there to work in peace. But the fact was that I went there only to be able to hate Mr. Feinstein without interruptions. In the meantime, the children went on making a lot of noise, and they even began taking liberties with Mr. Feinstein such as I would never have dared. One day my son met him in the elevator. It was the eve of the long Easter holidays, the thought of which was already filling me with dread. Mr. Feinstein said to Vieri, You are lucky to have such a long vacation. Yes, I am, answered Vieri with a smile, but you're not. At this point I went to see the school psychologist again. He suggested that I now try the progressive method, namely teach while playing in the manner of the modern school. I thanked him for the idea, and the same day I began to make many jokes to the children about Mr. Feinstein, the monster downstairs. I taught them to call him Sleepyhead, and whenever his name was mentioned we made snoring noises. Then the expression was coined, "'As lazy as Mr. Feinstein.'" This worked pretty well until Mr. Feinstein fell sick and actually had to stay in bed all the time. Vieri had taken up bouncing his ball again, so, to save the day, I at once established a Feinstein prize for silence. Unfortunately, one Sunday afternoon not long after, while I was walking through the park with my children, we met a group of friends who were on their way to pay us a visit, with their own children, six in all. As it was a beautiful day, we decided to stay outdoors and not go back to our apartment until tea time. When we started on our way home, I noticed that each of my friend's children was armed with a ball and that one of them had iron cleats on his shoes, and I began to warn them of the monster that lived under our feet. My children helped me, volunteering the usual epithets and noises, and suddenly whom did we see passing us but Mr. Feinstein, his face pale and stern. He must have been returning from a Sunday walk in the park and certainly had come up behind us and heard everything. He stared at me and said, in a dignified tone that stabbed my heart, "'Good afternoon.' I did not sleep that night. One always hates to be caught by an enemy in the act of abusing him behind his back, but what made things worse in my case was that I liked Mr. Feinstein as a person and would have given anything to be forgiven by him. Horrible, I thought. Instead of understanding the delicacy of our motives, he will understand only the indelicacy of our remarks.' So, after hours of nightmare, I decided that the only thing to do was to face the situation squarely and go to him. But, alas, before I did so, bad fortune willed that I meet him right in front of my door. He wasn't coming to see me, that I knew, but I said, Mr. Feinstein, I would like to talk to you, won't you come in? He hesitated, entered, and sat down without saying a word. "'Despite my confusion, I immediately noticed that in person "'he occupied a much smaller portion of the air than did his spirit. "'I had been unjust, and he looked much kinder than his spirit, too. "'I don't know why you want to see me,' he began. "'Are you looking for inspiration for more vulgar stunts to teach your children? "'As a matter of fact,' he continued, "'moving his chair back noisily and preparing to leave, "'I don't know what made me accept your offer to come in in the first place.' I was almost speechless, but instinctively said what I now always said to my guests. Please be careful, we have... And my finger was pointed toward the floor. He understood, for his face reddened, and he said with rage, Never mind, I'm up here now, not downstairs. I blushed and sank back on my chair, then stuttered, Now, Mr. Feinstein, you, who are a philosopher? He interrupted me. I don't see what that has to do with the fact that you teach your children to insult a man who has done you no harm. If that's the way Italian children are brought up, I can almost believe that Italy needs a Mussolini. Please, I said, there is no reason why you should insult me. Listen to me now. I myself never used bad words against you. But you laughed when your children used them. You even encouraged them. I heard what you said in the park. So you can hear me snore like a pig, can you? I... we... No, indeed, I never said so. You did say so. I heard you. I was only joking. Only joking. Respect for your neighbor is a joke to you. I knew it all the time, but for a while I thought that you were merely a little casual, like most Italians. But now I know. Respect for others means nothing to you, and you even take pleasure in persecuting others with your jokes. You are a fascist. Sir, I cried, that you should insult me in my own home. I can prove to you that I have fought fascism, that I have written dozens of articles denouncing all forms of persecution. You may have done so, but my experience with you is just the opposite. You have constantly disregarded my very modest demands, and on top of this, you make me out a clown to amuse your children. That, sir, is more than I... Please, please, I said... All my friends can be witnesses to the fact that your demands for quiet are the only thing I have taken seriously for the last two years. It is, in fact, I who may reproach you for making me a nervous wreck. Unintentionally, I admit, but still, I, said he, growing terribly pale, I, I have made you a nervous wreck? All my friends are my witnesses, sir, that all I ever asked of you was a few hours of silence a week. Is that what makes you a wreck?" You and your children have made me a wreck. How on earth can you have the nerve to claim that my asking you for those few hours of silence that I never got has made you a wreck? That is indeed fascist. Sir, I said, please listen. I admit you never got your rest, and I'm sorry, but you don't know how many sleepless nights I've spent trying to prepare the rest you never got. And let me tell you also that this all came about because I tried to be kind to you. First I tried to offer you two hours, and a quarter of quiet. Then three hours, and soon quiet for you became the ruling principle of our existence. Your sleep, Mr. Feinstein, ruled my life, and how could I persuade the children to obey these rules without pretending that I was taking their part against you? If you are to enjoy the sleep of the just, you must allow me to insult you unjustly. If the children know that you are a good man, they will want you to be so good as to cope with their noise, while if they think that you are a monster, they will respect you to avoid trouble." "'But that is fascism. That is horrible. "'Couldn't you have told them that I was very sick? "'I did once, when you were, but it didn't help. "'Besides, though I'm not superstitious, "'I hate to talk lightly about sickness. "'To mention it may tempt the fates.' "'He looked at me, bit his lip, then said, "'Why didn't you just call me a fool?' "'Who was I to do that?' I said. "'And you, sir, why did you always ask with such kindness "'and look so pale? "'That made me act the way I did.' He frowned, looked at me again, and then we both started laughing, and my wife came in with a bottle of wine and some wine glasses. The children, too, came running in, and started jumping so hard that this time it was for the protection of the house itself that we had to stop them. I guess, said Mr. Feinstein now, this all goes back to the incongruities of progress. Also, I said, to the decay of Western civilization. Perhaps, too, though only a little to these darling children here, he said. Yes, I said, or to me, who am silly enough to live in town. Let's drink now and be friends. So our friendship was sealed, and upon leaving, Mr. Feinstein said, Frankly, I prefer your noise to all that unfair propaganda against me. It's bad enough that the grown-ups should scare each other with lies. Let's spare these babies if we can. This time, I said, I am sure I can keep my promise. But, alas, this time, too, it was a mistake to make a promise. For now, every time I think of my good friend Mr. Feinstein, even late at night, I hope the children will play ball, jump, or do something awful, just to let him know that he has friends upstairs, real friends, and that his name is not being taken in vain. Yet he's so nervous now, so jittery, so sad, and needless to say, his spirit still sometimes manifests itself by the usual wrappings, that I still am afraid to let the children act like children, The result is that I never quite know whether to give rest to his body or to his soul.
0: That was Thomas Beller reading Niccolò Tucci's story The Evolution of Knowledge, which was published in The New Yorker in 1947 and later collected in his book The Rain Came Last and other stories published by New Directions. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker.
1: At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation.
0: So, Tom, there are so many ways to read this story. You can read it as a confrontation between neighbors in new york or you can read it as a portrait of apartment living or you can read it as a uh, confrontation between an italian and a german jew two refugees basically from european fascism written and set 2 years after the second world war and wh- which of those perspectives is most you know salient for you
1: i think the most powerful part of the whole thing is the vexation that he has with his children and with the world and the strange difficulty of separating the two. Half the time he wants to smack his kids and the other half the time he wants to smack somebody else for putting him in the position of wanting to smack his kids. Mm-hmm. And additionally, his tone I find quite delightful, the way that he goes between a kind of almost calcified European civility. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about literally his prose, you know, as a kind of formality to it. And then there are these eruptions of emotion, exasperation, fury. He has a very funny line when he talks about uh, a play area where the parents go to look over their children and who they hate. They sit there hating their children and enjoying the view. And I love that. I do feel like it's all cosseted within a wonderfully forgiving temperament, which is also something I love about the story and is a kind of gift of Tucci's.
0: Do you think that there's any element of, of political parable in this?
1: I think one could read it as such, but I would never impute that intention to Tucci. I think he was just trying to get the stuff of life on the page in a way that seemed real to him. I don't think he was being a um, a polemicist in any way.
0: Right. I mean, he he drops these little hints, like when the, the wife says, you know, this is about our children being noisy, but what happens when we try to teach them not to wage war on, on their neighbors, there's a constant sort of influx of wartime language right. in there.
1: But I think that's because that was the landscape in which they lived because, you know, the response of the protagonist of the story to that kind of meta mm-hmm. remark of the wife is like, now, 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 you know, we'll worry about that later. Right now what we have is kids, a neighbor, and this floor, and what are we going to do? So, yeah, I in general, I'm um, always pushing back against thematic readings of stories that I like a lot, refusing to imagine that they've – been written with any intention of symbolism right but I mean the landscape of that time you've got a city filled with refugees you, you know and from what it's all right there
0: you know Tucci uses his real son's name Vieri and his his daughter's nickname he doesn't name his narrator but he he throws in a lot of details which are directly autobiographical in a way that you know begs the question is this fact or fiction what's your take on that
1: Well, I read it as fiction, as a short story. I think it shows all the key signs of fiction in the sense of there being, you know, a manipulation of timing and certain heightenings or sort of mufflings, respectively. And it's been filtered through a kind of narrative sensibility. That said, this is yet another curious thing about my enthusiasm for the book when I first read it, which preceded a lot of things that I'm now thinking about, which are precisely along the lines of where does autobiographical fiction merge into essay? How do things that you write as, you know, nonfiction then almost become confusingly like fiction? And, and you know, when this when I read it, it was uh, it was sort of in this earlier era, I want to say like BBM, but that sounds like a bowel movement. I meant before memoir.
0: Okay. But <laughs> yeah. come to think of it, yeah. there may be
1: some echo between those two things. I would say if you went back about 20 years, which is probably when I read the book first... Mm-hmm if you wanted to shock somebody 20 years ago with news of the future, you'd say a huge chunk of America and America's literary journalistic culture would be consumed with writing about food. Mm-hmm. That would come <laughs> as a shock. And you would also say that the, the memoir and nonfiction in general would be appear a, a if not exceed the novel as the sort of main mm-hmm. form of literary expression. Both of those things you, you didn't see coming. But interestingly enough, you know, this Tucci style, even though at the time I read it, I'd read it just as a collection of stories, It does uh, engage those issues you just brought up. It does.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I wondered also because of Tucci's background, which is that he worked in the propaganda department under Mussolini in Italy and was very pro-fascist for a period of time and then became disillusioned with that, moved to New York and started writing anti-fascist propaganda. So that moment at the end of the story where Feinstein calls him a fascist and he says, no, no, read my, my papers I've written against <laughs> fascism <laughs> seems intensely personal and um, sort of engaging with an argument about his own life.
1: Well, let me say that when I first read his book, one of the things that most fascinated me, and again, long before I was really thinking about children or family or anything, but the collection really draws its strength from two diametrically opposed points of view. The first part has lots of stories about little kids Mm -hmm. looking up at their parents as these sort of godlike remote figures and being filled with this hysterical emotion. The first story is called Terror and Grief. And the second part of the book is written from the point of view of parents with children the age of the little children Mm -hmm. in the first half. And it feels very much like those little kids grew up to be this parent of these maddening other little kids. And that sense of there being a kind of flip is also contained in what you said. And I think it's a large truth about adult life, which is one, if not outright, renounces earlier ways of being, you know, mm-hmm. you change considerably, but then you have to live with having been this other thing, which mm-hmm. is its own strange uh, tension. I think in this day and age, most people don't have to be so starkly reminded of their different views. I mean, perhaps they change their, who they support politically or something. But back then, the currents were much swifter and people were at one moment, you know, Stalinists, and then they completely changed their mind, but they had to live with the fact they had been, and why did they renounce it, and well, who are they really? And so I thought that was a very elegant um, encapsulation of that predicament.
0: You know, Tucci makes a very sort of strong claim at the beginning of the story about the story, you know, saying it is a highly philosophical story because it proves that knowledge is not static, but instead is constantly in a process of evolution. How do you interpret that? I mean, for him, it's the key to the story. How does the story prove that?
1: I interpret that as an example by which his sense of the world is that one has complicated, potentially noble perceptions of life and the way humanity progresses. And these somewhat lofty or sophisticated thoughts are completely undercut by the absurd humiliations and comedies of the reality of your life. So the man who makes this proclamation is at the same time Rushing around fretfully, like as though preparing a meal, thinking of himself as a bride, mm-hmm. which means he's married. But that's so true, of course. They such a great fantasy—if he's fantasizing that he's a bride preparing the first meal for her husband, that makes him be the woman married to his nemesis. But that's really quite true on levels both personal and, you know, macro political and, and
0: architectural. Way. I mean, they live together. Right?
1: Yes, they—they they, they, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I take it at face value that he's sort of creating an idea that he's going to play with, but I think he's also creating uh, the circumstances for his his great move, which is the subversion, the attempts at dignity that are just subverted repeatedly. And that's true in family life, and it's true sort of professionally too. I mean, it's a bit fleeting, but this notion that uh, Feinstein has gone down to his office to do what? You know, try, but it's really difficult, and he comes back and he's shattered. Mm-hmm. meanwhile, Tucci's in his underwear in the living room and the kids are making noise. You have this vision of Tucci, you know, desperate for like some piece of quiet, you know. Who wants peace and quiet more, Feinstein or Tucci?
0: Yeah. I mean, he's yeah. all
1: focused on the downstairs guy, but you have the feeling that Tucci himself... So I i enjoy this enormously, these um, kind of doppelganger, right. nemesis friend thing. I, I, I think that must surely have been part of what was speaking to me when I first came across it.
0: One of the surprises for me on reading this story was how contemporary... The portrait of, of parenting seems to be Oh my be. God.
1: Couldn't believe it.
0: I mean this this idea that these children should get to make noise, they should get to be themselves, they should grow up in, in freedom and that they're to be coaxed but not not ever commanded.
1: It's just shocking. It makes it me makes you feel like Every single decade, there's a generation of parents who feel like they're on the absolute cutting edge vanguard of (laughs) we're dealing with this new thing and it's left to us to make sense of it. And it's like, well, actually, it's it's, it's completely, you know, out of like some mom blog, you know, should (laughs) you let them play with the blocks or should you take it away? You know, I don't know. Right. And then, of course, he just gets some comedy out of the political ramifications of that.
0: Is it different for you to read this story after becoming a father than it was before?
1: Yeah. It's a thousand times better. And I liked it the first time. (laughs)
0: Well, thank you, Tom.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thomas Beller's latest book is How to Be a Man, Scenes from a Protracted Boyhood. You can subscribe to this podcast or download more than 50 previous episodes in the iTunes store. The tablet edition of the magazine, with embedded fiction readings, is also now on the Kindle Fire. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com, or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treesman. Thanks for listening.